Hello and welcome to episode six of Making a Killing, the podcast from Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative on how corruption is reshaping global politics. My name's Nate Sibley and I'll be your guide on this journey into the darker corners of a global economy. For those of you following the news, there are no prizes for guessing the main topic of today's episode, which is the worsening condition of Russian opposition leader and anti-corruption champion Alexei Navalny. But before that, I wanted to flag an upcoming Hudson Institute online event that may be of interest, uh, and that is an interview about kleptocracy in Venezuela with interim president Juan Guaido and his economic advisor, Carlos Paparoni. We often think of Russia as the archetypal kleptocracy, but arguably there's no better or more tragic example of how a wealthy democracy can collapse under a regime bent on embezzling oil payments and which also now engages in gold smuggling and drug trafficking. You can watch the event at 12pm Eastern Time on Friday, April 23rd at Hudson.org. Navalny has proven a constant thorn in Vladimir Putin's side. He and his anti-corruption foundation have exposed billions of dollars worth of corruption scams, crooked deals and secret palatial estates owned by Putin's inner circle. He's done so with a wry sense of humour and a video campaign that connects with Russia's younger generation. Navalny was poisoned by Russian security services in August last year. After a miraculous recovery in Germany, he then heroically returned to Russia in January, knowing he would be detained or worse. He was duly jailed by a kangaroo court in Moscow, and his physical condition has deteriorated very seriously in prison in recent days, where he has been on hunger strike over being denied access to medical treatment. Last week, the Biden administration announced a new package of sanctions on Russian entities involved in election interference and the illegal occupation of Crimea, but they conspicuously did not mention Alexei Navalny. So as well as talking about Russian corruption and Navalny's situation this week, we'll also be spending some time on what the US and other democracies should be doing to respond to an increasingly problematic Russian regime. Joining me to do so are not one but two experts this week. The first will be well known to anyone working on Russia or corruption issues, and that's the financier Bill Browder, who is author of the book Red Notice, uh, which tells the story of how the Russian estate turned on him and his investment firm, uh, murdered his colleague, the lawyer Sergei Bandnitsky, who had uncovered a massive state-backed tax fraud. Inspired to find justice for Magnitsky and deliver accountability to his killers, Bill has become the driving force and public face behind a successful international campaign uh, for the introduction of sanctions against human rights abusers and corrupt officials worldwide. I'll also be speaking with Maria Snegovaya, a Russia expert and academic. We'll be talking about how Russians view not only the regime's corruption, but also Navalny himself. And as always, at the end of the show, I'll be reviewing recent news with journalist and researcher Casey Michelle and congressional policy advisor Paul Massaro. Without further ado, let's get stuck in and hear from Bill Browder. Okay, well, Bill, thank you so much for joining uh, Making a Killing uh, today. Uh, really grateful. I can't think of anyone better to speak to uh, with your insights, your long, uh, your long campaign for justice for Sergei Magnitsky. And I suppose that leads to uh, an obvious opening question, which do you see any parallels um, and or differences between what happened to Sergei Magnitsky and what is now happening to Alexei Navalny in Russia today? Well, the main parallel um, is that uh, Sergei Magnitsky uh, exposed corruption of the Putin regime. In his case, he exposed a very specific uh, $230 million scam <clears throat> that was that Russian officials committed. And um, and then uh, he was tortured. Uh, medical care was withheld when he got sick in prison. And then he died. And the um, similarities are that Alexei Navalny exposed corruption of the Putin regime. Uh, they retaliated by first trying to kill him in a different way and then arresting him. Mm -hmm. denying medical care, and now he's on death's door. The main difference between the two cases is that when Sergei was in jail and being tortured <clears throat> and being withheld, when, when they withheld, withheld medical attention, the world wasn't watching. Right. But the world is watching every step of the slow-motion assassination of Alexei Navalny. And what's remarkable is that as the world watches, as the world howls in outrage, Vladimir Putin isn't flinching. Right. Um, and, you know, I guess that, that leads again to another question. What do you think Putin is trying to communicate, trying to tell uh, presumably not only Russians, but um, the rest of the world, the rest of us who are watching this? What is he, what is he saying about his, his regime, his grip on power? Well, Putin is 
a hostage to his own psychology and he's a hostage to the situation of his own making. And, and what I mean by that is that he's living in a world where if he shows any sign of weakness, any sign of compromise, he feels like, and he's pro probably not wrong, he feels like that will opens the door for other people to try to take his power away from him. And it's like a prison yard. Russia is like a prison yard. And, and everybody in the prison yard is just staring each other down. And the moment that somebody looks at each other askance with disrespect, they have to be dealt with. And that's how Putin deals with everybody. Mm -hmm. And Alexei Navalny disrespected him. Justifiably, he disrespected him. He said, right. look, you're a crook. You're mm -hmm. stealing from the Russian people. You're stealing from me. You're ruining the future of Russia. He was honest with him rather than disrespecting with him, I suppose. <laughs> but 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 in this case, he's disrespecting him by mm -hmm. by not going along with the with the fraud, not going yep. along with the um, cover up. And um, and so he was disrespected by Navalny and he had to show the world and he has to show the world in his mind mm -hmm. that if somebody disrespects him like that, they're going to be dealt with harshly. And. Normally, what he what he would hope for is some kind of of uh, capitulation from Navalny, but Navalny is not capitulating. Navalny is not saying, "Oh, sir, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have exposed your corruption. I was lying. It's all wrong." Navalny is saying, "You're ruining my country. You can do anything you want to me. I'm not afraid." And that's just the worst thing that Putin could ever face because I, I, every day that this goes on, Navalny's profile, his, his stature is raised. He's mm -hmm. now on par with Vladimir Putin. And yep. in doing this, Vladimir Putin has set a trap for himself because Alexei Navalny could genuinely become president of Russia based on what, what's happened so far. Mm -hmm. And so Putin can't back down. Right. But if Putin doesn't back down and he kills Navalny, it will set off a chain reaction of, of things that that nobody could predict, but, but I think would be hugely harmful to Putin. I think that there would be massive domestic outrage and there would be certainly massive international consequences. We can come back to those, what those might be in just a minute, or what you think they should be in a moment. I just wanted to sort of rewind a bit. What, what role, we sort of dived into it with, with Navalny's role in all of this, but what role does kleptocracy play? As it was a very sort of simple question for our listeners. Um, what role does kleptocracy play in sustaining uh, Putin's regime? Is it is it part of it? Is it, you know, he, he lets people skim a little off the side, but ultimately actually, you know, like he is the president of Russia and he controls the security services and that's where his power comes from. Um, or is does his power rest on these illicit sort of financial networks or is it some sort of combination? And also I know, uh, you and, and your colleagues have, have, um, have made sort of estimates even of how much maybe has been looted from Russia in, in the past. So I wonder if you could uh, talk a, a bit about the scale of the kleptocracy as well. Well, so, so the um, <clears throat> first and foremost, Vladimir Putin is a, a, a kleptocrat. He's a crook. He's a thief. That's what is the driving force behind everything that's happened. Mm -hmm. And so what, what has he done? Vladimir Putin, um, when he came into power, he then started to steal money. And I'm not talking about small amounts of money. I'm talking about tens of billions of dollars a year he's stealing from the Russian state and from others in Russia. Now, that is, is a hard thing to do, but it makes it even harder because in theory, Russia is a democracy. So um, all these people who are being stolen from, and so you have, you, I, in my estimate, you have a thousand people who have stolen over the last 20 years, a trillion dollars from the Russian state. I think Putin is worth 200 billion mm -hmm. and the other uh, 999 uh, uh, have stolen 800 billion. And where do I get those numbers from? That's the rough estimate of, of, of corruption capital flight that's come out of Russia over the last 20 years. And it's been, that those numbers have been reinforced by various uh, estimates of the money laundering scandals at Dansky Bank and various other places. Yep. And um, so now you have a trillion dollars of money being stolen. And what should that money have been used for? That money should have been used for hospitals, schools, roads, airports, tele telecommunications uh, networks. 
But instead, the life expectancy for a Russian male is like 15 years younger than, than an average European country. Um, schools are a complete disaster. Mm -hmm. The roads, you know, uh, fall away to nothing when the moment you get out of Moscow. Yep. And it's a complete and 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 so and it's and we're in what's supposed to be a democracy. And so the average Russian thinks that they should be able to like choose their president, but their president is stealing from them. Mm -hmm. And so what does Putin do um, in response to this um, to this whole? you know, sort of requirement of democracy. Well, one is he cheats and, and he eliminates anybody who could be an opponent because he doesn't want somebody else like, like an Alexei Navalny who will show up and say, look, this is a big scam. You've all been ripped off for the last 20 years. Um, life could be a lot better. Um, we don't even have to do that much. All we have to do is stop stealing. Yep. Um, and, and so, uh, and it's not just Alexei Navalny. Boris Nemtsov was saying it and he was shot dead. Right. Gary Kasparov was saying, and he's an exile. And so Putin is, is because of the kleptocracy, he's had to put the screws to, to everybody who's challenging him, make sure that nobody else could become president. Because what's Putin ultimately afraid of now? Putin is ultimately afraid that if somebody else were to come to power, he would lose all the money that he stole mm -hmm. and he would go to jail. And he's most afraid if he was in jail, he would die like Alexei Navalny is dying right now. Right. No, so the stakes really couldn't be. It's an existential issue for him, you know, the, the continuance of his kleptocracy and the covering up of it. We begin to see why Alexei Navalny has become such a threat. With that in mind, um, and the importance of, of supporting uh, democracy, uh, the democratic movement in Russia, and keeping, frankly, keeping Alexei Navalny alive, do you think... The statements and the sanctions we've seen uh, from the Biden administration uh, so far are a sufficient deterrent to Putin in this case. I mean, it's a bit of a strange question because he didn't. The Biden administration didn't actually mention Navalny in relation to the specific sanctions package that came out last week. Uh, and on the same theme, of course, what about uh, similar responses from the EU, the UK, and other democratic countries? So far, the sanctions um, have been grossly inadequate. The sanctions have been against the sanctions on the Navalny situation have been against a small number of officials. And, and the officials were not low level officials. These were some very senior officials, but they were officials. Mm -hmm. And Alexei Navalny commented on this before it happened. He said that the sanctions against officials are not unhelpful, but, but they don't really get to the core of the problem. And, and he said, and this was in testimony in front of the European parliament, he said that you need to sanction Putin's cashiers, the people who look after Putin's money. And he went so far as making a list of these people. And he shared this list with his own organization. And he said, if anything is to happen to me, anything untoward happens to me when I return to Russia, you take this list to the US, to the EU, to the UK, and to Canada, and you get these countries to sanction these 35 people under the Magnitsky Act so their assets are frozen and their visas are canceled. And he went back to Russia and the worst came to the worst. He's now on death's door. His organization shared this list, but so far nobody has acted on it. And the U.S. government, the uh, White House, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor of the president, um, made an announcement which sounded tough to say that if Alexei Navalny were to die, there's going to be serious consequences. Mm -hmm. But what he really should have said is that there will be serious consequences right now for what they've already done to Alexei Navalny. He shouldn't be in jail, right. he shouldn't have been poisoned, and he shouldn't be denied medical attention. And so in my mind, the right policy should be to take the list that Alexei Navalny provided of the 35 names and sanction five of them the first five today and let it be known to Putin mm -hmm. that if anything more happens to Alexei, then another five will be sanctioned and then another five. And if, and if he were to die, everyone on that list will be sanctioned and then some. Mm -hmm. And Alexei knows who Putin's cashiers are because he's probably the foremost corruption investigator in Russia. And it can be easily cross-referenced and verified by the governments themselves. And by the way, if that were to happen, that would save Alexei Navalny's life. 
I was going to ask you about that just very quickly, because I suppose one of the counter arguments might be the things that the US government is concerned about is if they now sanction Putin in the way you've described it, the, the way that Navalny wanted, with Navalny in his clutches, in Putin's clutches, that might provoke Putin uh, and we lose our leverage and he just kills Navalny anyway. Um, what's the kind of counter argument to that? Well, the counter argument is, first of all, the, you're not losing your leverage because you're only sanctioning five out of the 35. There's another 30 to go. Um, <laughs> And Putin only understands, it's not like you can talk nice to Putin and he'll behave himself. All he cares about is real consequences. Right. This, is, this is a hostage situation in which we have to show that we're ready to go hardball. That's great. And so just to, um, just to finish, Bill, because I know you're, you're very busy at the moment. And I don't want to detain you for too long. But one of the other things beyond sanctions that you've talked about is uh, cracking down on Putin's enablers in the West, uh, the lawyers, uh, the bankers who who facilitate the money laundering out of Russia, that trillion dollars, perhaps, that you, you mentioned earlier. Um, what are some of the things we can do to try and dismantle Putin's external support network, the, the people who are really propping up Russia's kleptocracy without ever setting foot in Russia itself, necessarily? Well, you have a whole network of banks. So you, you have a trillion dollars that left Russia, went through Dansky Bank and all sorts of uh, Yukio Bank and Tr Trusta Commerce Bank and all sorts of banks throughout um, the Baltics and Scandinavia. And... As far as I'm aware, there's not a single one of those bankers who is involved in a trillion dollars of money laundering that's sitting in jail right now. Mm -hmm. And so as a, as a Western banker, if, um, if, you, if the, the reward is commissions on money laundering, and, and by the way, they make a lot more money on, on a trillion dollars of dirty money than they make on honest money. So that's the reward. And there's no risk because there's nothing bad will happen to you. Then guess what? Um, businessmen, when there's no risk and a lot of reward, will go with the the, uh, the profitable option. And so in the West, we need to create a situation where the rewards are um, equally risky. Mm -hmm. In other words, that, that you know, you, if, if you get caught, you go to jail. And mm -hmm. guess what? Most of these people don't want to go to jail. They, they want to go home to their families in the evening and eat, eat supper at their, at their table with their kids. Not, they don't want to be sitting in prison. And uh, all it takes is putting a few of these people in jail and enforcing the law. But what, what I've discovered, because we've been involved in tracing the money from the Magnitsky case mm -hmm. um, uh, for the last 10 years, is that even with hard evidence, um, these uh, prosecutors in most countries, for different reasons in different countries, either can't or won't actually take this stuff on. Well, Bill, uh, thank you so much for your time today, for your insights, uh, your, your tremendous experience in pushing back against uh, Putin's kleptocracy uh, while pursuing justice for, for Sergei Magnitsky is an inspiration to everyone, certainly in the anti-corruption community that I, I work in. Uh, I know, as I said, I know you're very busy, so we're going we're gonna to let you go now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, no one knows more about how to hit Putin in the pocketbook than Bill Browder, but I wanted to dive a little deeper into some of the issues we discussed and particularly find out more about what Russians themselves think of Putin's corruption and Navalny's efforts to expose it. So here's my conversation with Maria Snegovaya, a Russia expert and academic at the Atlantic Council, George Washington University and Virginia Tech University. Okay, well, hi, Maria, and thank you so much for, for joining me on the show today. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, I should say. Events are pretty fast uh, moving in Russia around this issue. Putin has just delivered his uh, State of the Nation address warning the West not to cross a, quote, red line in its dealings with Russia. At the same time, uh, he's massing, massing Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. And as we've, as we've heard, uh, he's denying medical treatment to Alexei Navalny in jail, uh, something which has prompted thousands of Russians uh, to, to also take to the streets today in, in protests. And I was just reading uh, before we came on, around 400 so far have been arrested. I'm pretty sure we can expect that number to, to sort of keep rising, unfortunately. Uh, so just to kick off, though, with, um, you know, I asked this to, to Bill just now, but about the nature of Putin's regime, because I think it's good to get different perspectives. You've described the Russian regime as being uh, neo-patrimonial. What, what do you mean by that uh, term? And what role do you see corruption playing in the structure of Putin's regime? Thanks a lot for having me, Nate. It's a big honor uh, to be here uh, with our audiences today. So, yeah, that's an excellent question. I think that actually taps to the core of the issue, uh, because to, in order to understand how the regime behaves, it's important to understand what it is 
And the nature, from our perspective, that the regime uh, neopatrimonial uh, refers precisely to how the structure of the system is organized. It's not an ideological regime, not based on specific, you know, ideology, although, of course, all these overtones about fight against the West, etc. will get there uh, later. But the essence is uh, that the regime relies on redistribution of spoils. Uh, of rent uh, that the regime gets primarily, of course, for resource rent, but also it can be anything really. Uh, two two groups, uh, the elites primarily, the narrow, narrow circles of the elites that influence uh, to some extent policymaking in the country and broader population groups. So such regimes actually uh, allow the elite members access to various forms of illicit rents, uh, patronage, and corruption actually, as you pointed out, is part of the systems, of this uh, element of the system. Ultimately, the goal essentially to ensure that because of this uh, very well uh, kind of defined system of redistribution to the elites and to the population, all the groups of the society will be in some way kind of parts of this cool system. And that will ensure their long-term loyalty and they will be less likely to rebel against uh, the highest ruler. Uh, usually so, such regimes are personalistic, by the way, that's exactly uh, the way we see it in Russia. The formal institutions do not matter much. They actually erode formal institutions, which actually very bad in the long term. And we find a lot of similar uh, regimes in post-Soviet space, as well as in Africa as well. So what is life like for Russia, ordinary Russians living under such a regime? Um, it's, it's perhaps hard for someone like me sitting in my comfy office in Washington, D.C. to to sort of imagine having a government that, that, that organises itself in that way. I take a lot of things for granted about what government does for me and what can be, governments can expect from me. Um, so, but, you know, Putin's regime has depleted the public coffers, you know, and raided the private sector over, over you know, de- decades now we're talking about. So what do the Russian people think about this? Are they, in, in your view, like, what did you, are they aware of the scale of, 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 of the corruption and the way that their government is structured? What are they concerned about this? Uh, so all very important uh, questions. Uh, so first of all, uh, because of the way I think uh, we can describe the regime, the two main objectives are really not improving the well-being of the society, but instead to maintain power and enrich the now narrow elite circles, precisely uh, as um, in line with that logic. And as you have pointed out, uh, the population actually is a little bit on the side of it. It does partake in this system of distribution, otherwise the population will be unhappy and rebel eventually, but it actually is the um, kind of the last in this chain of redistribution. And because so much is based on this redistribution of rent, extraction of resources in one way or another is one of the key elements of the regime. Uh, early in the early days when Putin just came to power, there was actually everything was good in the Russian economy. It was growing, partly the result of the economic reforms, uh, late Yeltsin, early Putin uh, reforms. Also, of course, the oil price was booming and the economy was recovering from 1998 crisis. So all of these factors combined actually led to a very uh, big growth for the Russian economy uh, in mid uh, 2000s when um, there was a lot of incomes revenues to redistribute to the rest of the groups. Also, the society was less state controlled at the time. So um, there was uh, a lot of incentives for development. Unfortunately, in the later years, of course, those um, uh, incentives have slowly all disappeared. First of all, uh, since the 2008 crisis, Russia's economy, and actually not just the Russian economy, this has been a global problem, has not completely recovered, has not really uh, been able to grow uh, to the extent that it has grown before, uh, despite the fact that actually the oil prices have been quite uh, decent in the continuous time. In. Uh, so the next problem was uh, that because of the Putin's regime structure, uh, the regulation, over-regulation continues. The state increasingly takes more and more of the economy. The regime is not welcoming independent uh, groups in the society, and hence it's not very it's very hostile to independent business as well. As a result, uh, the state dependence has grown, and by uh, 2016-17, we had about up to 70% of GDP produced by state-linked companies, by public sector, as opposed to only 35% in 2005. It wow, just shows yeah. you that essentially we're going back slowly but uh, steadily into the Soviet times. Of course, this is not a command economy, but it's increasingly getting much more regulated. In this situation, there's fewer incentives for people 
uh, to uh, to you know to be innovative, to create, uh, to be creative, and that of course also kind of influences uh, the economic growth, um, the negative uh, dynamic. And ultimately, of course, Putin system is unable to reform. Uh, this whole uh, patronage uh, structure, the corruption structure, is actually based on very nuanced internal connections, informal relationships, and it's not welcome and reformed because that would any reform, any decrease in the size of, size of officials, bureaucracy would decrease the opportunities for corruption. Hence, it will not, uh, it will create more people who are unhappy with the regime, undermine the origin of this loyalty uh, for Putin and the structures that he has created. So reforms are not possible, despite the fact that this issue of when is Russia will be, when new reforms are going to be coming, always re-emerging every electoral cycle. But we need to understand that the key essence of the regime, it's not going to be able to reform. As a result, yes, uh, people have been um, kind of made live made used to living in the situation of continuous economic stagnation. Putin, uh, therefore, had been looking for alternative sources of legitimacy. If he cannot increase like revenues for people, what is going to be? And we have seen this short victorious wars, quote unquote victorious, uh, mm -hmm. in Crimea. But those were followed by uh, sanctions, which further actually erode in economic growth. We have an upcoming uh, report with Andres Auslund, actually, where we show that in this regard, uh, Western sanctions have been successful. They've been cutting off, uh, decreasing Russia's economic growth over the last years uh, to 2 to 3% uh, per year, perhaps even wow. annually, depends on the estimate. Yeah, and so it's a very pronounced effect in this sense. Uh, therefore, there's no source for um, economic growth. Of course, in this situation, population suffers. Uh, we have faced um, a reality, a new reality for Russia, where for about the last seven years, Russia, the real disposable incomes of Russians have been in decline. Uh, so largely after uh, Crimea, but even before, uh, they, uh, they were not growing that fast. Uh, but the population, unfortunately, cares, bears this legacy of the Soviet times. It's not very civically active. It's used to rely on uh, the state. It's very paternalistic in its expectations, despite some promising uh, trends among the younger generation. And therefore, uh, they're sort of kind of tolerating that, despite the fact that their uh, frustration is growing. And then we see this frustration being reflected in the growing dissatisfaction with Putin, uh, the support for the authorities has been eroding, the Crimea effect is gone, but the society is still quite tolerant of this situation. On your question specifically about corruption, um, it is important. It remains uh, third or fourth uh, topic among the concerns that Russians consistently name, according to the polls, but it's not the first. Uh, yeah, and that's, by the way, one of the reasons why uh, Navalny has based right, his focus, all of his political strategy around his corruption, just around this corruption topic uh, reminded our audiences that uh, Navalny's um, foundation is called Anti-Corruption right. Foundation, right? He deliberately made this the key point of his um, uh, strategy. It worked to some extent, but uh, in light of all these uh, issues that I highlighted uh, before, and also because this concept in Russia of corruption being invinci like invincible, it's something that's consistently present in Russia's political system for centuries. There's this famous saying by one of Russia's famous 19th century writers, like, uh, wake me up in 200 years, ask me what happens in um, in Russia, and I will ask, I will respond, they're stealing, they're being corrupt, essentially. Yeah, point. and he was not wrong, by the way, <laughs> because if he was awake right now, he totally, uh, he would realize it was right. exactly true. So, because of that, uh, because of that, the key issues that Russians names um, as the top uh, concerns are not, is not corruption. Uh, as I said, it's like number three or four in the uh, on the number of concerns. The first ones are prices, unemployment, and uh, poverty. These are the three uh, top issues, the economic issues that consistently represent the key concerns uh, for Russians. But as I said, it's a longer term effect. Uh, this erodes support for Putin over a long term. It's not going to be uh, the something that will uh, deliver a final blow to the regime anyway in the near future. So, so there's an enormous amount of sort of cynicism about alternatives to, to Putin is what I'm, I'm kind of hearing. How do, sort of next question, given the events this week, how do how do Russians see Alexei Navalny? You know, we there's there's you know, tons of coverage him in the in the West now. As Bill said, he's he's this week he's as famous as Putin himself, at least. But a lot of the coverage tends to treat him uh, because this is the way that we Westerners sort of view the world as a as a democratic opposition leader, uh, kind of not in exile, but you know, as a sort of president in waiting of a democratic Russia. Is that how Russians see him, or do they do they see him in in a different way? 
So um, it's a great question, and um, it's a little bit tricky to answer because Russian society is divided. First of all, there's those Russians who get uh, the primary information from state uh, TV channels. Usually older groups, uh, 55 plus, uh, but there's still a, consist a very large share of the population. It used to be 90% when Putin came to power. In recent years, because the internet has been increasingly penetrated to society, and frankly, the TV coverage has gotten so boring and so focused on Ukraine that uh, even longer-term supporters of Putin doesn't, don't want to watch it anymore. Over the recent years, the uh, number of uh, TV viewers has been declining consistently, but it's still about uh, 65, perhaps 70% of Russians. Uh, on the other side, you see a growing number of people who rely on the internet. And uh, the interesting thing that in recent years, we see that the views, the political views of those two groups, pretty much the opposites of each other. So of course, the state TV viewers, they get all of this uh, uh, classic state TV propaganda. They're also older people. So they have those older like, uh, attitudes largely shamed by the, shaped by Soviet experiences. Uh, they also, the ones who remember the, uh, the uh, 2000s and the economic growth. So they still are grateful to Putin for this unprecedented improvement, improvement in their well-being really unprecedented in the Russian history that they experienced in 2000. Uh, so those people, of course, will view Navalny as, a, I don't know, an enemy of the state, corrupt, just another, you know, uh, hungry power person who wants to erode this carefully built uh, foundations of the state um, um, and then undermine Putin's, all Putin's achievements, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, uh, the foreign agent yep. as well. Um, and then, of course, you have this growing number of people on the Internet, many of them younger, especially those below uh, 35 uh, years old, approximately, who are who view Navalny as the future. Uh, this is a very unfortunate group of Russian uh, population who find themselves being a minority in the society because the share actually of the share of those who are, I think, below 30. It's about 14, 16 percent in Russia only. It's, a, it's an uh, older country, unfortunately. Uh, and they see absolutely no future under current regime, absolutely no prospects for them, right? All of the positions, like there's no economic growth, all of the positions uh, in the career, on the career ladder are occupied by older uh, uh, people yeah. uh, in position of power and or, or their uh, nearest family. Uh, you know, there's a uh, famous joke in Russia, whether a mayor's son can become a general. No, because the general has his own son. <laughs> um, and uh, that's exactly what we observe right now. There's no social lifts. There's no future uh, for these people. Uh, therefore, of course, they increasingly become more resentful uh, with the system, with the regime, and they found uh, their one of the potential like, ways to express that was uh, what by what Navalny offered them. So these people view Navalny very favorably. They're very high, large supporters of him, up to fifty percent. Uh, according to different um, uh, polls in this particular group, are Navalny uh, supporters. But on the broader uh, population, unfortunately, support for Navalny, uh, especially when, uh, for example, people are asked the so-called open question, who of the Russian politicians you trust, uh, Navalny gets about three to 5%. Uh, that, so that's, I mean, it depends how you look at it. Yes, it's not a lot. Uh, especially compared like to Putin, who um, gets, for example, 25 to 30%. But Note, note that this is at uh, three to five percent at the federal level in the situation uh, when Navalny had no access to state TV channels whatsoever or was portrayed there as an enemy traitor and uh, horrible, horrible person. So in that situation, uh, he uh, did achieve absolutely a lot. And this three to five percent actually is near to what um, so-called Russian system opposition leaders get, like, for example, the permanent leader of the Communist Party, uh, Gennady Zuganov. Uh, and that's actually it's quite uh, quite a large uh, number. Overall, uh, the share of people who approved Navalny's activity, his anti-corruption investigation, has grown uh, over the last seven years from six to twenty percent. That's another very significant achievement, unquestionable, uh, and absolutely above anything was remotely possible for non-system, non-systemic Russian opposition in the past. So from this perspective, Navalny is really one and only. Uh, he has absolutely um, political genius in the Russian political mm -hmm. context, we, who has been able to achieve completely unprecedented uh, successes in Russia's absolutely closed off political uh, system uh, without many changes. 
so from that perspective, yes, he is absolutely one and only, but we should still be aware that his absolute numbers of support are still uh, not significant. And the sad reality um, is actually shown these days in the streets of Russia. We are recording this podcast as Russians are protesting in the streets in support of Navalny. And unfortunately, despite the fact that Navalny is actually literally being killed uh, in uh, the jail right now, there's not enough. There's a lot of Russians, very courageous, brave Russians who are risking a lot these days when they show in those unauthorized protests, but there's still not enough of them, not enough to significantly change uh, the current situation. Just one example, um, Navalny's team announced as a new benchmark on the website, that they needed 500,000 registered people uh, to sign up for the protest before they announced yeah. a new one. And unfortunately, they couldn't get that number. They only got uh, 460,000 people. Uh, they had to announce the new protest without waiting um, up until um, 500,000 people because Navalny's health has been deteriorating really fast. That's just another uh, important indicator. So the protest is growing. The resentment with people with Putin is accumulating, but the sheer number of the protesters, the people who are willing to speak up, who are not afraid and who are not who really care about what's going on, there's still uh, there's still not enough. So we're coming coming sort of towards the end of our time, uh, Maria. And I've, I've just been your insights have just been uh, absolutely packed uh, with, with interesting information. I think a really important point for when we think about policy towards towards Russia. The that last one, not you know, Alexei Navalny is a complicated. You know, his, Russians have a complicated view of him, and his, his support isn't maybe as widespread as we would like to sort of pretend to ourselves in the West when we read the headlines. Um, not doesn't mean we shouldn't support him and, and the brave Russians, as you say. That's, but, you know, it's, it's worth bearing in mind. Um, but on that note, the theme of this episode is kind of like not only Navalny's situation, but what we in the West, uh, what the US, the EU, other democracies uh, should be doing to respond. Uh, and in a recent re- paper, you sort of highlighted there were sanctions last week announced by the Biden administration. They weren't, they weren't, um, they did not mention, let's say, Navalny, in fact. And we've had various statements and things from various governments, but nothing sort of devastating from Putin's point of view, I think. And just on, on that note, in a recent paper, you highlighted the need to back up sanctions with with strong anti-money laundering uh, enforcement and reforms where necessary to tighten those loopholes uh, around which uh, Putin's uh, cronies can, can evade sanctions and launder money. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a bit about that as well and the importance of, you know, why have sanctions if you're not going to, you're not going to, you know, enforce the, the ecosystem around them that makes them work? Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Nate. I have to say, yeah, and uh, it's a very important question, and I'm still not very happy with the current uh, uh, sanctions that have been announced by the Mm -hmm. Biden administration. They're not going to bite for the regime. Here, we're actually circling back to uh, where we started, that the nature of regime is neo-patrimonial, as I said before. Putin is dependent on his ability to redistribute rent to his closest cronies, uh, his closest elites, and the population more broadly. Uh, So my uh, suggestions uh, to the West, if we are really serious about reinforcing, uh, about making sanctions work and influencing Putin regime hidden where it hurts, uh, they're twofold. First of all, as you said, uh, yes, there is a lot of individual sanctions that target oligarchs, mostly Putin's uh, uh, officials. It's harder to target oligarchs because it's, you have to prove they're linked yeah. to the regime, etc. Uh, those are great, but um, I mean, at this point, Russian elites are not stupid. They understand they're not going to be able to go to the West, uh, where, especially given that this quasi-war, uh, Cold War uh, kind of relationship with the West, those who choose to stick with Putin, they understand that. So not being able to go to the West is not a very really mm-hmm. serious blow uh, to them and not seriously undermines the regime, particularly that Putin uh, compensates them um, uh, for, again, uh, increasing redistribution, providing some uh, generous packages, etc. Where it hurts is that uh, the, West, the Russian elites still uh, keep their assets in the West because, ironically, they still rely on the Western institutions because they were absolutely not able to build anything remotely similar in Russia. So, again, if you want to hurt them, you need to identify those assets that they keep in the West and uh, target those. Uh, the, unfortunately, until now, the system, systemic effort to fight money laundering and collect information about the freezing and freezing the assets about Putin's cronies, uh, it has not started. Uh, in the US, there's actually some uh, hope, especially given the beneficial ownership reporting requirements in the National Defense Authorization Act. And uh, there seems to be some promising developing on the Biden's administration uh, side in enforcing uh, that uh, rule. 
the, the new package actually also, uh, the, the one that Biden also announced, actually targets the nearest family of the official, of the Russian uh, cronies, which is also good news. Uh, but uh, the problem is the EU. Uh, the key, probably the key place where those assets are kept uh, is the European Union. And this is where something similar needs to be implemented if we are serious about, again, uh, hidden Putin's uh, cronies. So far, uh, the EU has done the opposite. So far, I decided, hey, we're fighting money laundering. So let's just expose the information about the accounts Russians keep abroad to the Kremlin. Talk about essentially, you know, uh, shooting yourself into the foot. Uh, the problem is that many Russians, especially position-minded Russians, of course, keep their account, uh, the money abroad. But you have now just provided the Kremlin another source of revenues. Now they know that these people have this money outside, and now they're absolutely going to figure out the way to extract uh, this money, particularly uh, given that their own um, revenues are shrinking. And the second, uh, the second element of the sanctions design, in addition to reinforcing the individual sanctions with its assets freezes, uh, would be definitely targeting this uh, Kremlin-linked uh, uh, revenue streams, primarily perhaps by targeting uh, major state-controlled companies. Uh, well, gas oil probably not possible because the EU is very dependent right. on the gas. But for example, state-controlled banks uh, that the Kremlin uses as its geopolitical tools, like VEP, uh, ex-Finishikonom Bank, would be definitely uh, one uh, a serious blow to the regime. At the same time, a fairly easy thing to do to the West. If we are really serious, again, to in to undermine the rent revenues uh, that the regime relies on to ensure the loyalty of the elites and the population. That's fantastic, Marina. I like that you go a bit deeper and you thought about the way that the, the regime is structured. And, you know, you, you do hear these calls uh, to sanction what they call the Navalny 8 or the Navalny 35, they're these big oligarchs, um, but, uh, you know, really attacking Putin's, uh, his personal revenue streams, basically, is, a, is, is another is another way of, of really hitting him in the pocketbook, which, which as we've as we've heard, is the thing that he's most worried about. Uh, but we've actually come to the end of our time now, unfortunately, um, because we have so many guests on today because it's such an important issue. Uh, but that was that was really insightful, Maria, and I'm so grateful for your time. Uh, and I uh, hope to have you back on the show at some point in the future to talk, talk more about Russia. Pleasure was mine. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Welcome to the news and analysis section of the show. Joining me as always are Congressional Policy Advisor Paul Massaro and journalist and author Casey Michelle. Uh, obviously, the fate of Alexei Navalny and all who bravely campaign for freedom in Russia is foremost in our minds this week, and we will certainly talk about that a lot more in just a moment. But first, I wanted to take a couple of minutes uh, to run through some of the other uh, notable uh, and also perhaps a bit more obscure developments uh, from around the world of uh, global kleptocracy. Uh, first, um, senior Biden advisor Juan Gonzalez uh, blamed predatory elites uh, in migrants' home countries for the crisis on the U.S. southern border. He said he and Vice President Harris uh, will be launching a regional anti-corruption task force to address the problem. Uh, in Kyrgyzstan, a former prime minister, and I apologize in advance for the pronunciation, but Kubanichbek Jumalayev, uh, I can see Casey, uh, who is a, is a Central Asia scholar, uh, smiling on the Zoom recording in the background. This, the, the former prime minister who had been charged uh, with corruption, uh, he was released from pretrial detention after he paid the equivalent of almost $12 million in compensatory damages uh, to the state treasury there. Um, back to Europe uh, and or Africa, uh, or both, uh, the Teodorin Obiang, the playboy son of Equatorial Guinea's uh, president, uh, was spotted attending a private audience uh, with no less than the Pope uh, in Rome, uh, prompting uh, really sharp criticism uh, from campaigners like Tutu Alicante, uh, who point out that Obiang's rampant uh, and decidedly unrepentant uh, corruption has made his country one of the poorest in the world. Uh, and then something uh, still in Europe, but something a bit different in Belgium, uh, police launched a massive operation against the growing power of Colombian uh, cartel-backed drugs trafficking gangs. They seized uh, 27 tonnes of cocaine in Antwerp. And they also arrested, uh, interestingly, several public officials, including police officers. It just indicates the extent to which uh, cartels are now starting to favour uh, Europe over the US, uh, lower risk of getting caught, higher prices, uh, but also for the, for the purposes of a kleptocracy podcast, the extent to which their operations, like they do everywhere, are beginning to spread uh, crime and corruption throughout the region uh, to a sort of unprecedented uh, extent. So very much a trend uh, to watch there. 
On the policy side, a couple of really uh, interesting developments which I'm going to hand over uh, to you guys for. Casey, perhaps uh, you could explain a bit about what, uh, the good news uh, from Canada this week. Yes, Nate, thanks for uh, for that and obviously for running through the uh, uh, news of the week uh, as well. There's uh, It seems like more and more to keep up with every time we check in with one another. The biggest news uh, on the uh, anti-shell company, anti-anonymous shell company uh, and, and beneficial ownership front this week uh, came you know less than 24 hours uh, ago from when we're recording right now. And that is the announcement from the Canadian government that Ottawa is going to be finally uh, implementing a beneficial ownership registry. That is to say, at long last, the Canadians, uh, the Canadian government uh, has recognized the problem of anonymous shell company formation in Canada, has recognized the fallout, the threats, the roles that those uh, uh, corporate uh, structures play in transnational crime, corruption, and money laundering. And they are very much following the lead of the Americans, following the lead of the Brits, following the lead of other countries that have announced they are are going to be implementing a beneficial ownership registry. That is to say, a registry of the names and the addresses of those behind the shell companies set up in Vancouver, set up in Quebec, set up in Newfoundland, set up in the Yukon, set up wherever in Canada, so that authorities can finally track uh, those who are behind this. But beyond that, you know, that in and of itself is huge news because after the American uh, legislation earlier this year that the, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act that the U.S. is going to be implementing its own beneficial ownership registry, uh, that left, frankly, the Canadians as the odd man out uh, as it pertains to anonymous shell company formation. You know, the, the term that they use in Canada, which I, I actually kind of I, I like it. It's catchy. It's memorable. <laughs> uh, it's snow washing. I mean, I think it's a it's a nice little bit of branding from uh, pro transparency. Money laundering uh, branding. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I don't know. It, it's, it's it's they took it. They ran with it. And I will say to their credit, it seems to uh, to have worked and certainly to ha ha have stuck. So what we saw just yesterday was the announcement from Ottawa that they are um, going to be uh, bankrolling, financing the creation of this beneficial ownership registry. It will be launched in four years in 2025. And beyond that, it is going to be public accessible. So journalists like myself, investigators elsewhere, civil society activists, human rights activists can finally begin tracking the, uh, you know, uh, Francophone Africa kleptocrats, uh, the Chinese kleptocrats, the post-Soviet kleptocrats that have turned time and again, that we have seen turn time and again to the Manitobas, to the Saskatchewans, to the Quebecs, to the Newfoundlands, et cetera, et cetera, of the country to use these shell companies to launder uh, uh, their gates. So I just want to applaud the Canadian government, applaud Transparency International Canada, which has absolutely, absolutely. led the charge on this. So it was great. It was relatively unexpected, but it's uh, it's fantastic news. It's interesting that you, met, you guys that you mentioned the, the, the great sort of PR, the, you know, the branding of it as snow washing, of, uh, because actually Canada is one of the countries, particularly British Columbia, uh, where this issue of foreign money, uh, particularly going into real estate, uh, has actually become... Vancouver, a, yeah. a public, an issue of public and political, uh, public concern, political debate. Uh, quite often, some of the ideas we talk about on here, they're kind of wonkish, you know, like the things that experts within the Beltway or law, law enforcement officials find interesting. But sometimes there has been that struggle to sort of connect with how does this affect uh, the ordinary American, the ordinary Canadian, the ordinary European Br Britain. Uh, but in, in the case of British Columbia, huge uh, public sc scandal about how particularly about, you know, this laundering of money through casinos uh, into real estate by by drugs trafficking gangs linked to China, linked to the cartels. So it's, a, it's also, a, 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 you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but all this happened, but it's also uh, as they start to introduce these reforms, hopefully going to be a good news story about how engaging and an, and an interesting case study about how you engage public opinion uh, to, to, to close these loopholes. Yeah, Nate, just to build on that point right uh, uh, right there for a moment, you know, I was in Vancouver two years ago reporting on this phenomenon, reporting on these networks, reporting on some of the findings that were beginning to come out from the local British Columbian government. And things in Vancouver, I mean, you, obviously we see this model replicate itself, New York, Miami, Houston, LA, you know, you pick a Western, uh, uh, well, certainly North American city, you're going to find this phenomenon of uh, uh, money laundering via shell companies, via real estate. But things had gotten so bad in Vancouver, just get, to get back to the branding comment, that international yeah. investigative authorities in Australia, in New Zealand, in the US, and in Canada as well, had taken to be to describing the broader phenomenon specifically. 
as the Vancouver model, the link, uh, the, yep. the Vancouver model, the linkages right. of illicit capital, dirty money flowing out of especially China and Hong Kong uh, through the casinos, through organized crime rackets that ended up in real estate, driving up the prices for everybody else, pricing out um, local populations, ended up in things like vote buying scandals. I mean, this was a, 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 a an especially pronounced uh, aspect and, and case study of the phenomenon that we talk about every single week. Awesome. Paul, um, some other good news uh, this week, uh, this time from across the pond uh, in the UK, uh, pertaining to their own version of global Magnitsky sanctions, uh, which we've been talking about earlier on in the podcast. So I wonder if you could uh, update us on that. So this has been a long time uh, coming down the line. Uh, we'd been expecting that, uh, you know, the foreign minister of the UK, Dominic Raab, would uh, make an announcement like this, but it's always great to see it actually happen, that uh, uh, the UK Magnitsky sanctions will include uh, corruption. Uh, and of course, until now, the UK Magnitsky sanctions have been on human rights abuse, and that is similar to the EU Magnitsky sanctions. So mm -hmm. uh, once the UK Magnitsky sanctions include corruption, it'll be the EU that remains the only, um, I guess in this particular case, a, a, a block of countries, but the only uh, political entity that's adopted these Magnitsky sanctions without also having corruption provisions, which right. means that synchronization and harmonization will be much, much more difficult with EU sanctions. Uh, we'd certainly love to see the EU adopt corruption provisions. And as I've said before, corruption under these targeted sanctions makes an awful lot of sense because mm -hmm. oftentimes these individuals who engage in these uh, transnational corrupt acts have a lot of money sitting around uh, in, in, in these areas like the EU, like the UK, like the USA, like Canada, as we just discussed. And if they don't, it blocks them from bringing it in. This is what people That's often right. forget. People always think sanctions are this offensive weapon that the US uh, belligerently uses to bully and, and destroy other countries' economies. Yep. Uh, in fact, they're also a highly defensive measure. You know, you sanction someone, they can't bring their dirty money into your, uh, into your and country. They're a, they're, a, they're a primarily defensive measure, I might argue. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and Paul, Paul, I was just going to say, you know, the, the framing of or the notion of that you can, you know, implement something called the Magnitsky Act or whatever jurisdiction it, it may be in without having an element uh, of uh, corruption or counter corruption or counter kleptocracy uh, within that. It, it strikes me as so just bizarre and strange, given who Sergei Magnitsky was, given what he was doing, given what he was researching and given what he was killed for. That is to say, grand corruption ill-gotten gains that is why he was killed by russian authorities and, and yes it's a human rights abuse but to have a program like that without an element of corruption or corrupt facing um uh uh, uh you know a uh, language in that it, it just strikes me as almost offensive to the legacy of uh magnitsky himself yes <laughs> i mean i i am i i absolutely agree and yeah. and i i mean of course you as in as in any political scenario you know, you try to get something in place and then build on top of that, right? And I think in sort of the UK's case, that's what happened. And it's very exciting to see this next stage. And I think there will be building pressure on the EU uh, to, of course, adopt uh, a, a corruption framework inside their, their Magnitsky sanctions. Um, of course, we are also still expecting that Australia and Japan uh, and Taiwan, which are all discussing a, a Magnitsky sanctions framework, um, will hopefully have both of these elements. The law is not complete, and there can be no synchronization of sanctions without both of these elements. And if any one democracy does not include both of these elements, then it's leaving itself open, of course, uh, as a safe haven for this dirty money. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that and keep you updated as, as that as that progresses in the UK. Uh, but th this issue of Magnitsky sanctions runs through the whole uh, program today. It's it's you know one of uh, Alexei Navalny's... Uh, well, it's his, it's his only demand uh, of, of, of the United States and, and Western Europe is that they, that they sanction uh, these figures that uh, he believes are, are part of Putin's inner circle. Uh, and that is the way to properly and effectively pr apply pressure to Putin's regime. I mentioned in the introduction to the program that we had a, a sweeping uh, series of uh, sanctions uh, and a new sanctions authority issued by the Biden administration here in the, in the US last week. So a new, a new authority giving very broad powers to, to the U.S. officials to sanction uh, Russian entities for pretty much uh, anything now, um, if they want to. Uh, and then the, the other sanctions, though, didn't strike me as particularly hard hitting when it comes to placing direct pressure on, on Putin and his inner circle. Uh, they were, you know, they were disinformation uh, platforms, uh, 
They were, uh, you know, pseudo officials uh, in the Russian puppet government in eastern Ukraine. They weren't these these big oligarchs, these the, the people holding Putin's uh, wealth in trust. Paul, I know that you've been um, quite concerned about, you know, the, the, the Biden could have could have been a lot stronger there, and indeed needs to be a lot stronger if it's going to save, you know, contribute to saving Alexei Navalny's uh, life by pressuring uh, the, the Putin regime. And so I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on that, but particularly pose you a question, which is, do you think um, that such a strong uh, response at the moment would be productive, knowing Putin as we do and the way he behaves and responds to, 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 to the ways he's prodded by the West or not prodded? Or do you think it's more worthwhile holding those, those sort of nuclear option sanctions, really going for his personal wealth as leverage to try and secure uh, Alexei Navalny's uh, safe release? So yeah, just be. Inter- I know you're quite you're quite um, upset about this whole issue. So I, you know, as we all are. So perhaps your thoughts. Yeah. So it's something I've been tracking very closely, and of course, it it relates closely to to the work I do on the Hill. Um, and I think it's impossible to look at what is happening to Navalny and what is happening on the border of Ukraine, of course, as well, where they're amassing troops, right, without understanding kleptocracy and transnational criminal networks like this. Uh, on which the Russian state is, of course, based. It not only uses corruption as a form of foreign policy, which we talk about a lot, but the entire Russian state relies on corruption. Uh, The way that it's held up, of course, is having the dictator at the center, Putin, and then, you know, his circle of cronies, who are essentially their loyalty is assured by providing these various spoils and opportunities to loot Russia. Uh, And then that money is transferred to London, to New York, to Miami, to to wherever else, uh, Mm -hmm. via the uh, money laundering uh, a structure that we've spoken about, you know, to to some extent on this program, anonymous shell companies, uh, sleazy banks, secrecy jurisdictions, all that sort of stuff, enablers. Um, so to the Thursday sanctions package, I mean, I just want to say that you know it's 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 good to see this rhetoric. All right, I mean, I mean from a rhetorical perspective, sure. the way they're talking about Russia and talking about um, the what what Putin is doing is very good. The problem is only that when you don't back those words up with with really meaningful action and you call for de-escalation from a regime that has no desire whatsoever to de-escalate and and, and cannot de-escalate, really, um, then you're you're in a lot of trouble because in some sense, you know, um, this just means that 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 Russia will up the ante. And, 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 And in some sense, this mutual incremental escalation that's going on. Uh, is is just another uh, part of this pattern where where you know Putin sees that okay well this isn't this isn't the 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 death blow this isn't this isn't the really meaningful strike that could be made which okay I guess you know I got to respond in kind and 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 so on and so forth I think that to to really get a reaction out of the Putin regime and to really you know save Navalny's life right now yes absolutely you must go after these. 35 oligarchs and cronies who have been identified by Navalny as the kind of movers and shakers of the of the Putin regime and the cronies that have uh, 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 been the worst looters of Russia. And, uh, you know, I mean, go ahead and sanction five of them and then and then sort of say the others, we're going to keep on sanctioning until Navalny's safe. And then if he dies, you know, we're not only sanctioning all 35, we're going to sanction. Does that, not corner Putin? Does that not sort of corner Putin, though? And, and you know, he's I'm not. I personally, just having observed his behaviour over the past few few years, not confident mm-hmm. he wouldn't take that as a as a provocation and just do even worse stuff. So that's the kind. Is that what they're thinking? Is that what they're doing? They're saying in private, we are about to unleash the sort of nuclear options on you if if Navalny doesn't live and is not released. I hope not. I hope not because because um, I mean Putin's Putin's strategy, Putin's work is to sow chaos, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like you can't you can't even think about Russia in terms of national interests, right? Because the idea is to loot the state, to transfer that money to the West and to ensure that there's a constant stream of chaos, a constant stream of mutual escalation Mm -hmm. and a constant sort of hand waving um, that can ensure everyone's kind of distracted from from the fact that this this looting continues and continues and continues and the the dictatorship continues and continues and continues. Um, So in some sense, to just continue this kind of Okay, here's your off ramp, Putin. Here's your off ramp. We're always offering him an off ramp. Every administration offers him an off ramp. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want an off ramp. He never will want an off ramp. You know, the the only way to actually get a response is to really bring the hammer down. 
Casey? Yeah, exactly. Paul, you know, th this notion of, you know, I think back in 2014, right? We have February, late February of 2014, when the Russian troops first began moving into Crimea. And that is when you began seeing this notion of, and this rhetoric around an off-ramp. And again, this was yeah. the Obama administration mm -hmm. at the time, uh, offering a, a, I suppose, a form of a fig leaf to Putin, thinking that conceptualizing that he is simply mistaken. He simply doesn't know what he's doing. He is simply misunderstanding the facts on the ground. And if only we can convince him, if only we can show him the light or the right path to this off-ramp, uh, then we can get things back on the right track. And I think back then of Angela Merkel's comment, uh, and, and again, we don't have to talk about the, the, the German policy as it pertains to uh, to Russia. That's all. That's a whole episode for, that, for that a different, a different time. Episode. But her notion, <laughs> you know, her 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 idea, her framing of Putin as existing in a quote different world than the rest of us. I mean, I think it hits at both of those in the sense that if he lives in a different world, perhaps we can show him that and we can bring him to the light. But if he is living in a different world. You know, that is where he's going to remain. And we have seen time and time and it's now seven years since the invasion of southern Ukraine, since the invasion of eastern Ukraine. The notion of an off ramp should have been jettisoned as soon now, as it was made you know, March 18th, 2014. He comes out and he announces the very first forced annexation on the European continent since the days of the Second World War. That is when and where the notion of an off ramp should have died. And yet we see this notion come up again and again and again, without understanding, without sinking in what this mafia state regime truly uh, is. And, you know, Navalny, uh, obviously, to his eternal credit, understands it for exactly yes. what it is. And we are recording this podcast in the far end of this. He he was dying before we began recording. He might be dead by the time we are yep. done. There is absolutely no reason. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to use stronger language than that. There is absolutely no reason that the U.S., uh, uh, Brussels, London, Ottawa cannot come out and sanction each and every one yes. of these oligarchic right now. that Navalny. What are we losing by not sanctioning Roman Abramovich? What are we not? What are we losing by not sanctioning Alisher Ismanov? There is no reason that we should not follow Navalny's lead on this, if for no other reason than to illustrate the depth. Uh, 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 of how he has been treated and how we will respond to that treatment moving forward. There's just no reason whatsoever they have not that uh, they shouldn't have been sanctioned already. And it's and it's worth pointing out. It's not just you guys uh, saying that. And I happen to agree with you. I was sort of putting putting the what I presume is the Biden administration's uh, plan for this uh, to you guys for comment. Uh, but but it's it's Navalny's uh, close friends and personal allies that are, con are still continuing to say um, you know hit. Uh, the Putin regime with everything you've got in terms of sanctions, yes. uh, you know, anti-money laundering, exposing where the hidden wealth is, um, even as their their friend, their leader lies in, in this dire condition, in this dangerous situation. That's exactly right. So they, they want it. And the other, I mean, th th this idea, this idea that keeps like that crosses the the, 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 the board on, 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 on okay, we want to have a, a normal relationship with Russia. We want to have a respectful relationship with Russia. You cannot you cannot. It is pa it is past time for Washington, for London, for Brussels, for Ottawa, uh, for Canberra. You know, you name it. To understand that there is no such thing as a pro-Western or pro-democratization oligarch. Doesn't matter yes. what regime they come from, whether it's Azerbaijan, whether it's Kazakhstan, whether it's Uzbekistan, it does not matter. That yes. is inherently an oxymoron because these people feast on the uh, uh, national coffers, they loot the national coffers, and they turn to Western financial secrecy tools to launder those gains and to continue it going. If I may, then that's that's an interesting point. So we've only got about uh, sort of three to five minutes left, guys. So um, you know we talked about sanctions. So I, I take it that you uh, you know it's time to sort of what if you were in Biden's shoes, uh, what would your policy to policy towards the Putin regime be uh, right now? So we've got these uh, the, the sanctions that have been suggested by. Navalny and his anti-corruption foundation. Uh, Navalny himself mentioned eight oligarchs or uh, senior officials, I think. Uh, his foundation named 35. Uh, yes. So we're going to sanction them. Is there, are there other steps we should be taking? Uh, other sort of things that are in the works, maybe in Congress, Paul? I don't know, that we could introduce, uh, you know, like that, to, to make a real signal and hopefully influence uh, Putin's behavior in a positive way uh, from here in the US and the EU, if, that, if that's, well, and the UK, where, wherever it is. At the very least... You make a statement, you make the consequences clear. You say, if, if Navalny dies, all 35 of these guys are going to be on the SDN list. 
better than that, you hit five right now. You show we mean business. You show this isn't this isn't a nothing. I mean, I'm I'm fine with Casey's move too. Just going ahead and hitting all 35. I mean, I think that that's 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 a okay. I I certainly think also, you know, you start going after uh, uh, the dirty money in the USA. You know, like let's make it very very clear. You know, like we are going to recover. I'm sure we've got a lot of. Uh, cases hanging out at DOJ, you know, like, let's bring some of these, let's move these up. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, you never want to, you never want to politicize the rule of law process, but there certainly is like, if a case is, is out there and ready to go, like now is the time mm-hmm. let's publicly open investigations. Let's get this going, you know? Um, and I think that you can do this in conjunction with, with the EU, obviously if Germany, you know, again, I, you know, you don't need to go too deep down the, the German policy. Well, uh, but if Germany were to cancel Nord Stream two or put that on the, on the, Right. chopping block and say like, okay, if you, you know, you kill Navalny, no Nord Stream 2, mm-hmm. that would be huge. And we just saw the Czechs like cancel Rosatom, you know, yeah. like, like, so, I mean, like on, on account of this crazy GRU operation, which we didn't talk about, but, but, uh, you know, it, it was demonstrated that the GRU was behind this uh, ammunition depot explosion in the Czech Republic. So, I mean, it's, there's just kind of, it's kind of and, and I should also add that these Russia sanctions, they did not include Nord Stream 2 sanctions, right? Mm-hmm. They did not include anything on Navalny. They did not include any sanctions on oligarchs. Yep. So again, it was a very small, a very small uh, off-ramp type action. And that's exactly what you don't want to do when you've got uh, Navalny, you know, really facing very public uh, ongoing execution by this by this brutal regime. Yeah, just in terms of the timing of it, we also learned, I'm sorry, you know, even leaving Navalny to the side, we learned last week, the Treasury Department uh, 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 revealed last week the confirmation that Konstantin Kalimnik, this alleged Russian yeah. intelligence asset, was liaising directly with Paul Manafort, Donald Trump's 2016 campaign manager, to funnel internal campaign data, uh, to funnel mm-hmm. uh, other proprietary information to Russian intelligence to use for God knows what. I don't want to rehash the 2016 interference mm-hmm. operations, but Nate, to your, to your question, uh, what can be done, what should be done, uh, you know, Follow Navalny's lead as it pertains to a sanction. But beyond that, please, 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 please finally implement just the broad contours of the anti-corruption counter-kleptocracy playbook, ending anonymity in shell companies, ending anonymity in hedge funds and private equity, ending anonymity in real estate, ending anonymity in art and auction houses. I mean, we have seen these used time and again to work around and circumvent American and Western sanctions. And you are just, you're, you're, you know, the horse is out of the stable. You're leaving the barn, your door wide open. You can yell sanctions at these people as much as you want. But if you are giving them this get out of sanctions free card, time and again, pick your policy. They can do what they want with it. Uh, if you're not implementing that playbook, then you are just, um, uh, you know, you're, you're just wasting everybody's time. Casey, that's a great point. And, and, and I mean, work with the Europeans where you can, but don't don't wait up. Don't don't let the lowest common denominator determine your response. And and I think there's some things that USA and the UK, for example, could do very effectively together. I mean, we have all of this Russian money known to be in London. Like, yep. you know, like, like I think there's a lot of action there. And I just want to say to the to the kind of revelations about disinformation, I thought that was also a really neat part of what happened Thursday. And you you could foresee more revelations about corruption, right? Like, I mean, why why isn't there more just like, hey, you know, like, I mean, one of the reasons the Magnitsky Act is so effective is because when you sanction oligarchs, the Russian people get it, right? Mm-hmm. When, when they see what happened Thursday, that we're going after Russia for X, Y, and Z, and we're hitting all these low-level people and whatever else, the Russian people are like, oh, this is just another escalatory action from the United States. But when you hit like oligarchs, they hate the oligarchs. The people have actually ripped them, them off blind indeed. Yeah. yeah. And they, they don't want these people to, to be able to enjoy their London properties or their New York City properties. Uh, okay, chaps. Well, that is unfortunately all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much uh, for your insights again. I hope uh, someone in the White House was listening to that those, those last few minutes. Uh, and uh, I look forward to welcoming you back in a couple of weeks. I hope they were listening too, Nate. <laughs> Sadly, that's all we have time for this week. Of course, we send Alexei Navalny and his family our thoughts and prayers and hope also that enough international pressure could be brought to bear to secure his release. Don't forget to visit Hudson.org on or after April 23rd for our interview with Venezuela's interim president, Juan Guaido, on how the Maduro regime's kleptocracy has brought what was once South America's wealthiest country to its knees. If you're enjoying the show, please, as always, remember to subscribe and share with your friends. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.